loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Sean Perry. Sean has two decades of coaching experience and working with youth. He's a certified life coach, cognitive behavioral coach, nonviolent crisis intervention specialist and instructor, certified in childhood trauma, and he's also an exposure response prevention specialist. He's trained to train staff in the Signs of Suicide Prevention Program, and he's been trained in collaborative problem solving and spent the last several years in the human service mental health field. Sean saw a huge gap in the mental health industry. He noticed that it was more about the haves and the have-nots than anyone would like to admit. Amen. This lack of equality pushed Sean to create We Are Hope, Inc. with a colleague while still the program manager at a residential treatment center for boys with severe severe trauma. He now focuses all of his energy on We Are Hope to create, and that's We, capital R, H, period, O, period, P, period, E, period, to create change in the public schools by bringing support at a much younger age and breaking the stigma of mental illness. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Cheryl. How are you? Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm really glad to have you. Um, This is, you know, not just important to me as someone that works with the impact of grief, but uh, very much intersects with my experiences as a parent in a in a you know urban environment. Um, just watching young people being being impacted by numerous losses, numerous traumas, lack of support, lack of resources. So I'm really happy to have you to talk about um, your program and and the kind of impact it has. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, you know, I, I think he said something really powerful there is that, you know, um, what we're seeing really all over is this generational trauma, you know, um, from grandparent to new parent to child, and then it becomes this cycle. Um, so really the work that we're doing, um, we believe uh, we can really help support everyone because this is just a, this is just a, a public health crisis, really. Yes, and of course, not irrelevant to all that, from my point of view, is uh, the gun violence that's going on in schools. Every kid, pretty much every kid, unless they're in new, complete news blackout, uh, is exposed to the possibility of trauma, which of course is ready-made for anxiety, isn't it? Yes, without a doubt. I mean, I think... I think that's one of the big things is, you know, there's, there's so much violence um, and gun violence that's happening throughout this country um, that, you know, all of our children really are being exposed unless, like you said, they're living in a bubble somewhere, really. And I don't know of any bubbles uh, in my community (laughs) anyway. No, (laughs) I don't know how you would create that. Um, But, but interestingly, and I, you know, I, I don't know what you think about this, but, uh, of course, this has been a factor in some of the communities where I live in Oakland, California, for a long time. Um, but I find as things like Parkland and New Hope and um, uh, let's let's just say more white majority communities are right. more of those communities are having this this experience. It seems to me that there's. Uh, more outrage than than there was publicly, at least. Right. I mean, I, I think that um, we are in a in a time in an era where um, where voices need to be really be heard, and um, it's it's impacting communities where they never thought that it was going to impact them before, and um, 
you know, they're using it as a platform, I believe, to uh, to be able to have some of these these dialogues and these conversations, which I think is which I think is great in, in some aspects, but um, can be kind of troubling in others, if that makes sense. For sure. Right. Right here in my community last week, uh, the son of a city council member here who was an extremely talented. I have some intersection with him through the choir I'm in. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, extremely talented, one of those really special kids, worked on gun violence. He was randomly shot at USC where he was uh, in the neighborhood around USC where he was going to school, you know, not somewhere you would expect that to happen at all. And so right. uh, locally well, here, that's that's been all over the news and affecting, of course, all the young people he worked with because he was a drummer. Right. He had he had been a teacher here, so. Well, Cheryl, I think, it's, you know, what's really important to, to understand is that we, as a society in America, are so reactive to problems, right? So reactive to crisis, right? Yes. But the, the thing is, is that it's not often that we're actually proactive, right, mm-hmm. in starting to do preventative work. And the reality is, is that gun violence and all of these epidemics that are happening throughout the country, um, the opioid crisis, mental illness, um, all of this, right, for the majority can be prevented by supporting children at a young age, right? We need to start to get to prevention. I think one of the things that that's important to, to keep in mind is that we know as a people, right, the things that can happen. Um, with our children, in our communities, and it's not often that we put systems in place to protect those children in those communities until something happens. And it's not until something happens that we decide to do something. And so, you know, what we do uh, and we are hope is we looked at that crisis and we looked at that problem and we said, hold on a second, we've got to start doing things sooner, And so we are all about preventative work and preventative care and prevention as a whole, because we honestly believe that if you can support children in kindergarten, teach them social emotional learning and teach them those lagging skills and those things that they need to be able to be productive members of society, if you can teach those now at a a young age, then we can reduce the level of trauma that's impacting this country. for the, for the acts of violence that are, that are occurring, whether it's uh, physical violence, emotional violence, the opioid crisis, mental, mental illness as a whole. If we support our children at a young age, we can change the game. We can literally change the culture. Oh, I couldn't, I could not agree more. And I'm, I'm impressed that you've, it sounds to me like your program is very high intensity. I, I'll, I'll have you describe exactly what you do in a minute, but uh, a lot of hands on, a lot of presence. Therefore, of course, uh, inexpensive at the price, given that given the costs of kids not gaining these skills, but very hard to sell to, for instance, government uh, entities and and such. And so uh, I want to know both how your program works, what you do with kids and youth, and also how you get that funded, basically, how you get the buy-in from schools, parents, students, um, government uh, private donors, you know, to to right. really be able to offer the kind of service you do because it seems quite uh, intensive. Yeah. So first, let me yeah let me go ahead and explain exactly um, what it is that we we do and the model that we use. Um, so one of the things that James and myself, James is uh, the, the the other co-founder. Um, one of the things that we say is that we're not reinventing the wheel, right? So, and and it's, it's hard for people to kind of grasp that. And they're saying, well, you, you have a whole new system. And the reality is, is that we don't have a whole new system. We have a whole new approach, but we don't have a new system. The system is things that we know that work. And what do we know that works is life coaching works, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy works. They're proven. There's data. There's evidence behind it. And we know those things work for, 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 uh, for people. So what we've done is we, we took what, what, what two systems work and we use them to bring it into the public schools. 
Now, if you look at a residential setting, the one thing that makes residential settings work really, really well is there is such a layer of consistency in their treatment style. And so you have, you have children that are, that are in residential that are getting support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, you know, for however many months they're, they're in, residential, in a residential setting. What we've done is we were giving students support five days a week with 24 hours a day, seven day a week access to coaches um, outside of school. And we're supporting them for a half an hour every single day and creating very, helping them to create very specific goals daily, weekly, and monthly. And so one of the things that we know about children is that they often struggle with being told what to do, right, in school, right? So um, when, when you have um, kids that are struggling in school, they are often set, you know, told they have to go to the principal's office, told that they have to speak to a social worker, told that they have to speak to a guidance counselor. And what we do is we allow them to come in and partner with us Giving them to giving them the power to create what they need to do um, for themselves to be able to get through the day. Because one of the things that we know and understand is that children don't come to school wanting to flip a desk, wanting to hide under a desk, wanting to run out of class. Those are things that's their behaviors are a language that they're saying I'm struggling, and so we're giving them we're giving them that space to be able to communicate what's really happening. So that's interesting. And you're saying that you develop the program with the student even at really young young ages. Is that yeah, correct? So that's correct. So even in kindergarten, right, um, we take a student that, that's in kindergarten and we talk about where are they feeling the emotion, right? So if we have a student that is that um, is possibly um, hitting another student in class, you know, one of the first questions we ask was, before you hit that student, what were you feeling? And they can yes. tell you. And one of the problems is that we don't give children enough credit. We don't allow them that space to really tell us what's going on. We'll say, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? But that's not the questions that need to be asked. See, we have to stop looking at behavior and start looking at what's behind the behavior. You know, now I'm thinking of of my life as a as a grandparent because uh, I have a, a seven year old and a five year old grandsons, and mm-hmm. lots of talk about emotions in their family. Um, and so the seven year old has been able to say that he's nervous, you know, yeah, <laughs> and get some get some early support. But that's that's only really because uh, that is you know, something that um, his parents take on. So the idea that every student could have that kind of support to, um, you know, to, to really um, identify their emotions and, and figure out what, what to do with them, that, that seems wonderful. Well, so what we have to remember, Cheryl, is that um, the, the fears that we have as adults right, if you will, or the, the things that we struggle with as adults, or the way that we respond to very specific situations as adults, are the things that we were told when we were children, okay? So, for mm-hmm. instance, um, we don't touch a stove because we know it's hot because we were taught that at a young age. But we may not show emotion in a relationship later on in our life because we were told not to show emotion or we were told to stop crying because of something at a younger age. So those things are put into patterns, which are, which are implanted into our branches. We are, which are now learned behaviors, right? So now we've, we've learned to hide our emotion. We've learned not to cry, right? But what we want to do yes. is we want to allow space for that, for our children to understand that it is okay to be emotional, Right. I was recently working at a, I was recently doing a training at a school and a student was crying um, in the middle of my training and a teacher came over. I hadn't heard what had happened and the teacher had come over and told the child to stop crying because I was talking. Uh, so I walked over. That must said, have broken your heart. He to, <laughs> oh yeah. I said, I, said, I said, why does he have to stop crying? And so I asked the young man, I said, I can talk I said, while he cries. 
<laughs> yeah, right? So I said, what's going on, little guy? And, and so he got so upset. And he was, he, what, what he was saying was that another peer in the room, had t- I was asking questions, and one of the students had taken one of the questions that he was actually going to ask at the same time. And so he became extremely emotionally dysregulated, thought that he wasn't going to have an opportunity to speak. And I said to him, hey, man, you can still tell me, and I'll still listen. And all of a sudden, he stopped crying. He was blown away by the fact that he could still say what he wanted to say. And I'm sitting here thinking, if this happened in front of me, a guest to the school, I wonder what happens in that classroom all the time to this child. And very unconsciously, there's, a, there's such a... Uh a strong impulse because of the way many of us were raised, honestly, right. you know, to to hide emotion. So it's a strong impulse that if you don't bring some awareness to it, uh, the teachers have all been raised that, that way too, yes? So that well, what, well, a, what agree, an incredible right? teachable moment. Well, I agree, but I think one of the things that we have to understand and, and, and the teachers need to understand nowadays, right, these, these aren't, this isn't the same generation, right? There's something right. happening to our children that are coming up that, that we, as the older generation, don't really understand. But just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that we need to draw a line in the sand and say, no, this can't happen. This is where we're at. And we need to accept that. <laughs> these children are struggling and don't know how to show emotions appropriately. And then we also have to look at the, the, the reality of, Maybe they don't know how to show emotions appropriately because we as parents aren't doing our jobs the way that our parents did their job. Mm. Let's come back you to that after I mean? the break. It's time for our first break. But um, that that whole intersection of school and parents and, and how that's going, I think, is, is a, a big subject. So let's let's go back to that when we when we resume. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to follow my social media, get on my email list and all that. There also there also is a link to my novel, Good Grief, which is about uh, a mother and daughter repairing their relationship after the diagnosis of cancer of the daughter. Uh, you can find Sean Perry and his organization by going to wearehope.org and that is w-e-r-h-o-p-e dot org be back soon think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere, Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, the Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening. 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Sean Perry. His organization, We Are Hope, works with youth youth to address mental health um, and anxiety, for instance, and other um, aspects of mental health. And before the break, Sean, we were... uh, we were just starting to talk about the intersection between the home life of kids um, and what kind of guidance they're getting or not getting at home and the school life of kids um, where you're in some way your program fills in, I guess, uh, where other other systems to teach kids how to manage their emotions haven't been successful. Um, and right. I think you were saying um, f- that part of it is is maybe parents not being quite as available as they used to be, but also the circumstances of kids, to my mind, having changed quite a bit. Uh, I just don't remember knowing that much about, I knew about some dangerous things, but not, not uh, ones that uh, necessarily affected me directly. Um, right. Well, well, so, you know, it, it's important, right, to, to, to really grasp the fact that our, our kids have access to, to things that, that we as children never had access to, right? Um, you know, I couldn't as a child get up on, my, on a phone or on a TV and look at um, things that were happening in New Zealand or happening in Australia or happening in Saudi Arabia. We didn't have access to that. When we heard about it, we heard about it you know, on the news at six o'clock at night, if we watch the news even, right? So a lot of right. things, our, our, our children have access to things. I was actually talking with uh, someone the other day about, one of the teachers the other day, about, um, te- about students and, and how a breakup, you know, in seventh, eighth grade nowadays goes viral, right? So years uh, ago when I was in school, if you, if you, you know, if you, if you broke up with somebody, you know, they handed you a letter and then maybe one or two people in the school knew and this thing now, you know, it's all over Snapchat and it's all over, you know, Instagram and it's all, you know, and so these, you know, our children today are, are just being shamed and, 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 and they live in this, in this pile of fear because of what society has created through social media. And that's, I, I have to say, I mostly work with adults. That's true for adults too. We're we're oh, very overexposed to things that make us anxious, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yes. And there's I a mean, sort of um, I I don't know how to find the balance point between awareness and um, kind of fear generation. Um, there's it's hard to strike that that balance these days, isn't it? It is, uh, you know, I, I have uh, um, our clinical director in, in Fairly, Vermont, uh, Wesley Walter, um, who owns uh, uh, Mildell Farm Center for Wellness. He, he has this, this saying, you know, that we have to stop living in fear. We have to stop letting fear control us and rule us. And, it, and it's, it's so true, right, that, that our fears are really controlling almost every aspect of our lives and, and the choices that we make. And so by learning our emotional state and learning what's going on and when we're feeling these emotions, you know, we can get past our fear. You know, we can live a fear, a fear free life, if you will, by really coming to terms with, with our fears and then moving past them. So let's, let's put this, let's get a little bit practical with this. Can you think of a kid who had a lot of that kind of anxious, fearful, what's going to happen energy that your program was able to help and what you and he came up with uh, strategically? I'd love to hear an example of, of how yeah, this so works a, in practice. Absolutely. So we had a young man, um, 
who was in a, who was in middle school um, who could not stay in class. Um, he he couldn't sit in the front of class. He couldn't sit in the back of class. He couldn't talk to teachers. He couldn't. I mean, there was really not much he could do in school. He was flunking almost every almost every class. And 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 so we we got we got um, we got him to come work with us. Um, he was very excited to do so. And what we did to start was just build rapport, have a conversation with him, let him know that he feels safe, let him know that he's listened to, all the things that sometimes teachers in the classroom just don't have time to do with 25-plus students in the class. And so we become that, that, uh, that trusted adult that every, that every child needs, if that makes sense. And so yes. doing that and building, building that rapport, we started to talk about what are some of his fears. And as he started to open up, you know, his fear was fear of judgment. You know, nobody likes him. Uh, people pick on his shoes. People pick on his clothes. So we really start to work through all of these things that he was fearful of. His voice sounds weird. He doesn't like the sound of his own voice. He's scared of the teacher who doesn't like him. And so what we started to do was allow him to start to challenge those negative thinking traps that he was in. And as he started, to, as he started to, to challenge those, he started to realize that he had no evidence, right, to really back up his negative, like the negative traps that he was in. And the more that he created, uh, or the, the more that he was able to write these things down and physically see them, that there was no evidence to support these negative traps that he, that he was going through or thinking about, he was able to start to come to realization that these were cognitive distortions. And so as he did that, we were really able to start working through um, all of this. And so what we started to do was start to create very specific plans for him or with him of if you're struggling, do you think that, do you, think that you can write the teacher a letter? Yes, that's something I can do. Great. Let's write the teacher a letter. So he started writing teacher's letters and saying, this is where I'm having a difficult time. Then he started doing hand gestures, which then allowed him to be able to communicate with the teacher what he needed by a specific hand gesture or a color of a bracelet. So we had red, yellow, green, which meant if he was in red that he needed to take a step out of the room and take a break. But then there was a plan that he would then come back into the room after five to seven minutes. So we started to help him to identify the things that he was struggling with and then create very specific plans around those things to be able to reintegrate himself back into class. Now that young man has since exited our program. He was doing extremely well in school. A's and B's that was, was what I was hearing last. Um, he's since joined the basketball team and done very well. That's interesting because uh, you're focusing most primarily there on, on uh, distortions of thinking I can also imagine, though, that, um, you know, some, well, maybe this goes to my history. I was a bullied kid, and there was a reality right. to it, right? Yep. But it's right. what I what what I made of that that troubled the most, that stayed with me. Uh, it was mm-hmm. what I thought it meant about me. So in that case, let's say there's some reality that kids are, you know, shaming him or uh, telling him his yeah, shoes are ugly or whatever it is, then do you so we just did talk work a lot with, about that as well? Yeah, and what so, and, and then did, so that sorry, so that the, the parts that have some reality to it, you just acknowledge that, but then focus on how he's coping with it. Would that be the no, direction so, you'd go? So the, so, the, so the stuff that has actual lividity, right? That that he is being picked on or he is being bullied, right? We talk about a lot of self-esteem. And so what is in his power, right? So we have to understand that we cannot control what other people think about us, right? We have to be able to come to terms with that and identify the fact that that's a them problem, right? So often right. what we do, especially when it comes to bullies, is we say, we, we look at the bigger picture of if a person is bullying you, is it very possible that they're struggling with something also? So we're really coming at this thing with Full, at a full circle with just a, a bunch of empathy all the way around the board for not only the student that's, that's being bullied, but for the bully themselves. Because a bully, right, is clearly struggling with something. They're struggling with their own shame, their own self-hatred, or maybe they're being abused at home, or maybe that's the way things are you know, going in their lives. Maybe they're actually being bullied and then, and, then, and then bullying somebody else because they feel bad about themselves. So we're really pulling this thing full circle and saying, let's look at it from a larger scale and let's be empathetic about the entire process. 
Gosh, I just think that's so important because I watched with all my kids that when so- a kid was was struggling and and that was coming out with other kids that they they had there's there was a tendency to demonize the kid who was doing the behavior no one liked. Um, right. Exactly. And and exactly. defend the kid whose behavior was more um uh, socially appropriate and right that leads to so many problems so i'm i'm really glad to hear that you look at it from that perspective well, so that every kid needs needs the uh the backup exactly and so you know a perfect example is we had a kindergartner that we worked with and the, one of the things when i said i said well let's you know give me some back you know give me some backstory some history around this this young lady and um what I heard was um, she she hits other students in class. Um, she tells them no. She takes things out of their hands. She's very mean. She's they use the word she's nasty sometimes to other students, so forth and so on. So me and the child start to work together. She's very closed off. I start digging a little bit deeper, and what I found was that she has been moved from her mother's home to her grandmother's home over four times. Mind you, she's already in kindergarten. She's only in kindergarten. She's had cigarette burns put out on her or cigarette cigarettes put out on her, on her body. And she was sexually assaulted. She's in kindergarten. And they're wondering why her behaviors are what they are. And so what they're telling me is Sean, we need to fix her and we need these behaviors to stop. And, 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 and my response is, is we don't need these behaviors to stop. We need to support her through these behaviors. It's not about the behavior. The behavior is her language of what she's dealing with. Right. She's communicating that she's in pain. And the, and the sooner that everybody in that classroom, teacher, assistant teacher, could get on board with that and really understand that this child is struggling, the easier it's going to be for this child. See, it's not about the child stopping the hitting. The hitting will stop when we find out why she's hitting to begin with. I, I have a lot of teachers in my family, and, and what I know is that that is so hard to, they would all agree with you a hundred and a million percent, and then trying to navigate the classroom uh, and give the support, I think a lot of teachers I know are quite frustrated by not having the space or the time, having too many kids, you know. So right, uh, right. A, a program like yours that can give kids an individual uh, ear uh, must be, teachers I would imagine would be very grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from what we're gathering and from, you know, what, what we hear is schools, the districts themselves and the teachers individually really enjoy the work that we're doing, because what happens is, so they may have a child that's struggling in their class. We're able to find out the why, right? Where the teacher may not have, like you said, may not have the opportunity. We're able to find out the why, then bring that back to the teacher with a plan that's created for the student so that they can manage the day. And now the teacher has a set of skills that maybe they didn't have before because now they, now they have something in their toolbox saying, okay, so when uh, student X is struggling here, this is something I can implement because this is what the coach helped to help them come up with. And the student has already agreed upon it. And it's something they believe that they can do themselves. So we don't ever put a plan in place with a student and say, okay, so today this is what you're going to do. We engage them and ask them, what do you think you can do to work through this situation? So, so they'd have we a much greater tendency to, to take ownership then of the solution exactly. because they've created it themselves. Exactly, exactly. And so when we, when it, and that really speaks to our program as a whole. So really, uh, you know, it's, we don't work with students that don't want to work with us. So every student that works with us, I think this really speaks volumes to our program. Every student that works with us has volunteered to work with us. They weren't sent to us as a punishment. They sat down, they signed the contract, unless they're in kindergarten, um, they've signed the contract and they've made a conscious decision to work with us for 60 to 90 days. 
understand that's a that's a bit that's a lifelong commitment for a (laughs) six-year-old yeah it 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 can be yes it is you know but 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 the great thing right it's it's a space for them it's a space for them to come out because so we you know we pitch this as listen you know we are your advocates in school you know we are going to be here to help support you and get you through moments that that you're currently struggling with and kids want that they want that one-on-one attention and that's what we're able to offer them five days a week so i think we've come to the program to the other aspect of my question which is how do we get that uh you know what's going on in oakland for instance where i happen to live is uh, class sizes becoming larger and larger, services being depleted more and more. Um, So I know that the school district probably doesn't have the resource for programs like you're talking about. Uh, Is is your school district in better shape than that? Um, We'll only get started because it's about time for another break, but... um, maybe the beginning of an answer and then we can come back to it. Sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're in three different school districts currently right now and they're all funded a little bit differently. Ah, so let's, let's come back to that. Cause I think that would be interesting to, uh, you know, the broad base of people that listen to this, just what are the possibilities of how to get something like this done? Because I think it could be u- so useful everywhere, <laughs> you know, um, right. How to how well, to scale this? To be everywhere. Yeah. So it's time for our second break, and listeners, you can go find both of us during the break. I'm at weatheringgrief.com. That's my website or the Good Grief Host page, and you can find Sean Perry and wearehope.org at uh, wearehope.org. That's w e r h o p e dot org. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Sean Perry, the founder and president of We Are Hope, an organization working with youth, youth to support them in dealing with anxiety and other mental health issues. And uh, we were just beginning a conversation about how you get this program uh, that you're currently in three schools and you said you you get it paid for three different ways, which I found interesting. So can we get a little more detailed about that? Because I imagine people are going to hear this and go, oh, I want to, I wish we could do that where we are um, because it's just such a overriding issue, how to support kids in environments where there are more and more kids in the classroom and, um, you know, resource is such a big issue. Absolutely. And, and, and I, and I do actually hope that people say, wow, we want to, we want to get this. Cause that is our, you know, our, one of our goals when we created this organization was to be, to have a, we are hope hub in all 50 States. That is one of our, one of our top goals. And so the way that we're currently, um, the way that we are currently funded in one school is um, it's called uh, the IEP uh, funds. And it's, there's IEP funds that are available under, under Medicaid that are available for prevention work and prevention work only. And so we are, a pre- we do what's considered prevent preventative work and preventative mental health work with students. So that's one, that's one. And, um, and just for, for people who don't know, I'm assuming IEP is the same as it is here, which is individualized education plan. Correct. Is that Correct. okay? Great. Just in case people don't know that, that term. Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. Sorry about that. And so, no um, and then uh, one of the other ways is some schools actually have added uh, resources into their budget um, to be able to support mental health work in their schools because they understand that there's a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. that's another way. Um, so that's two ways. And then the third way is donations, right? So you know, uh, uh, private funding organizations or, or private charitable um, organizations have donated um, resources to us, which allow us to then go into the schools and pay our coaches to be able to coach students, uh, to be able to coach students. And then there's obviously a fourth way, which we haven't really gotten into too much, and that's just writing grants, um, uh-huh. and which I am, I am all for kind of going down that, that government grant line, but I'm, I, I kind of... Kind of, my my partner and I kind of really personally struggle with that because the bottom line, I guess, is that these systems that are already in place have proven not to work. A lot of them, um, and so I just don't want to be beholden. We don't want to be beholden to government funding, if that makes sense. Not that we, you know, uh, yes, so it, many it, little stipulations it, it, around it. The other thing that I've noticed happens with government funding. I I work with an organization out here called uh, Women's Cancer Resource Center, and they've specifically not gone for government funding because it's so undependable. And you get your yeah. program dependent on it, and then one year they say, "Ah, oh, we're not going to fund that." This, you know, and your whole program is is in jeopardy. So I I do know somewhat what you're talking about there. Um, exactly, we want to be completely sustainable. Right. I I feel we're on the cusp of you know what's way too large a discussion for this hour, but I just want to put it in here that which is that that race and class and. Uh, even gender, those, uh, well, let me, let me start from another. I think the race and class of students directly impacts resource. Uh, Without a doubt. And so then I'm thinking, could this happen here where the, where the schools are so stressed financially, uh, you know, not sure how. So that's a whole other show, <laughs> you know, how the schools that, right. in my mind, so need these kinds of programs, how they get access to it, uh, because uh, 
it, it seems inversely related that the higher the stress for the students, the lower the access to um, well, so innovation I'm, like this. So I'm currently working on a project um, out in Vegas with a Title I school. Um, we're partnering with a yoga, a yoga company. Um, I don't want to give their name because I'm not sure if they want anybody to know quite yet. But um, we're, partnering, we're trying to partner with an organization out there um, to bring our work to um, a Title I school out in, out in Las Vegas. And we're going to try to run a pilot out there um, coming into the next school year. So, you know, one of the things we're going to be talking about when we're there is funding. What does that look like for their district? Do they know about these pools of money that are available to their district and, and, and if not, let's get them, let's let them know about it. And then also, how are they actually currently utilizing that? So one of the things, you know, um, that, that everybody should know is that we're, we're taking students and we're sending them off out of our school districts to, um, to go to other behavioral places and, and so forth and so on. And so every time a school does that with a student, at least up here um, in New Hampshire and Vermont, each student is roughly about at a $90,000 price tag. Well, the school district is losing that money every time they send a student out. So what we're currently doing with two of our districts up here is I've created a program in which students actually stay in the district, and we're creating public therapeutic classrooms, um, which, is a, which is a really great concept. Um, it's, a, it's a super intensive program. Um, and then eventually we're going to be doing public therapeutic day schools um, for, those, for, for other students if the pilots go well. So what we're trying to do is allow these districts to be able to keep their funding or their, their resources within the district and learn how to support their students there so that we can get those students integrated back into the regular classroom. That's fantastic for sure. Um, Really great. And one thing that stands out in talking with you for almost an hour now is your obvious passion for what you're doing. So I wanted to just uh, spend a little time before we're out of time getting some sense of what drew you to this work in the first place. Because I find, you know, given what I do here on this show, there, there, that kind of passion usually comes from experience, you know, uh, your own or observed experience. And I just was very curious what brought you to it. Well, um, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm asked this question a lot. And, and the only thing that I can say as far as me having the passion to, to get into this field and into this work is I feel that it's in my DNA. Um, mm. For as long as I can remember, you know, my family has just been an integral part of, of my life and they've given and they give and they give and they give. And, you know, my grandmother on my dad's side was just a phenomenal woman who just gave to her community and people would come over the house all the time. And they were always, you know, we were always, you know, feeding the, you know, the neighborhood or having big barbecues and everybody in their, in their family came and, and it's just part of the DNA and the fabric of the Perry family. Um, it was just, that's just, that's just how I grew up. And so I've always had this passion to help and support other people, but at a younger age, I just didn't, I knew it, but I, I was so stuck in my own anxieties that I thought that I had to be somebody that I wasn't. And so I didn't allow myself to be that person. And as I got older, I said, this is the person I honestly want to be. So this is the person I became. Um, and what drew us to this, we are hope piece is we were, in a residential, we were, uh, my partner and I were working in a residential setting and it cost $90,000 for students to go there for 60 to 90 days. So for roughly 90 days, it was about $90,000. And after working there for a few years, you know, my partner and I said, look, like we're doing really great work, but we're only helping the top 1%, not to say that they don't deserve help and, and we're not doing great work and, 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 and they should continue to get support. But what about all of the other kids in this country that don't have access to treatment like this. And so that's yes. how we came up with We Are Hope, was that we wanted, to, we wanted to create a system in which everybody, everybody deserves support and everybody can get it and really break the, the barrier of, of the financial aspect of it. You know, one of the things we say is, you know, our, our telecoaching sessions uh, cost $17.50. You tell me where you're going to find treatment like that. 
where you actually right. a, a coach that's going to support you every single day. You know what I, I mean? I'm going to pretty our, much our, say our, nowhere. <laughs> right, right. And so our sessions in schools, right, are $35 for a half an hour for each, you, you know, for every, per student. Yeah, well, that you yourself uh, were, were held back by anxiety that you had to get mature enough to learn how to cope with. And then, and now you're helping young people with the same exact thing, aren't you? Yes, exactly. I mean, look, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a town. Uh, my father was black. My mother was white. I, it was the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so it was, it was difficult. We each have our own ways, don't we? Um, yeah. You know, that was, a, you know, that was a, that was a difficult part for, for me is not really kind of understanding my identity as I was growing up for a little while um, and just continuing to kind of just push through and thinking that I had to be something that I wasn't. Um, but once I, once I owned it and owned who I was, life got a lot easier, if that makes sense. Yeah. But that, that would give you a lot of been there credibility, you know, it's not like you haven't come through things and figured it out. So yeah, I can imagine I that I that helps. The, I definitely have the I've been there credibility. <laughs> that's what, that's what <laughs> because I, I have been there. It's invaluable. We <laughs> wouldn't we, we wouldn't invite it, but we depend on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what what uh, you know? I'm glad to hear that you're hoping to scale to all 50 states and that's a huge project um but uh one state at a time (laughs) one state at a time yeah (laughs) well hopefully california you'll have to let me know when you when you make it uh, make it out this far because we're on the opposite ends of the country aren't we 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 are but you know you know the the thing is, is is that you know we we believe in 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 more than anything we know for a fact that our, our, um, our program could be implemented at any school and that every child in this country could benefit from having a personal life coach and having a personal cognitive behavioral coach. I mean, who wouldn't want one? And every adult can, you know? So we know that there's longevity in what we're doing, but we also know that we can help support so many more kids than the, than the, than the status quo that's currently happening now in the school system. That's such a great place to to end our conversation for the day i want to thank you really for being here and uh i'm excited to see where your program goes thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it this was amazing awesome uh what just one more reminder you can find sean perry and his organization at wearehope.org next week i'll have sunita puri the author of that good night The memoir chronicles how Sunita resolved the conflict she felt between her medical training and her upbringing in a Hindu tradition which focused on impermanence. This conflict ultimately led her to her specialty in palliative care. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.